So we are in week number six of our series on happiness. So I want to ask you a question. You can answer inside your own head. Um, you maybe could answer for the person you came with today, if you came with anyone. But are you happier today than you were last week? Are you happier today than you were last month? Are you happier than you were six weeks ago? Over the last six weeks, we've talked about happiness and God's definition of happiness. But even before that, we spent about the last 10 weeks or the previous 10 weeks talking about attitude. And so you guys ought to be the happiest people with the best attitudes in the world. And as a matter of fact, Christians should be that way. We have absolutely no reason to be anything else except happy with a really great attitude. Now, my wife is out of town, which doesn't make me happy. She is in Arkansas and she is doing baby shower, grandbaby shower uh, weekend. So she's pumped. I mean, I don't even think she's known that I'm not with her, that she's out of town. I mean, she's just so excited. They had a shower on Friday. They have one this afternoon, grandbaby due in December. But when Joy's not here, I'm not the same. Uh, I've just been sitting around the house. I've been doing house projects, which is a scary thing. Uh, some things that Joy wants me to get done. She's probably watching now online. So I'm not going to tell you what those are. I like to surprise her when she comes home. But when Joy comes back, um, uh, then she'll see some things that have happened, maybe some progress around the house. Now, I need Joy to do everyday things. I found that I even need her to do things that are simple things. Uh, she even likes to help me drive. And yesterday I found myself um, driving all by myself over on Delaware. And you know, if you're driving on over on Delaware and you're in Ankeny on a Saturday, uh, you know that it gets a little bit um, congested. It gets a little crowded. And I don't like driving in Ankeny anymore. I don't know what's happened, but I mean, it's, it's worse than just about any area around. And I found myself in Delaware and I find myself at the mercy and I hate being at the mercy. I was at the mercy at one of these stops where the traffic has the right of way going the other direction and I'm wanting to merge and I have to just wait for somebody that's having a good attitude and is happy who will let me into traffic. And so you sit there and what do you do while you're sitting there waiting for somebody just to stop and let you in and merge? I mean, you try to act pleasant. You try to look pleasant, which for me is not easy at all. I have the wrong haircut for that. Oftentimes my forehead looks like I'm studying for a test. And so then you try to smile and I don't smile well for it. I mean, it's like you smile and you're kind of, you know, and people don't know what you're doing. And so you just roll down the window and you just look and make eye contact. And finally, this lady comes up and she's in a minivan, not like she was, you know, driving a Bentley or anything, just a minivan. And she um, even looked more unpleasant than I suspected that I might look. And she comes up and she's got the right of way and she knows she has the right of way and she's feeling it, right? I mean, she loves the right of way. And so I'm looking at her, I'm going, there's no way she's letting me in. I try to do my best to look, you know, pleasant and smile at her and kind of wave. And, and she holds her hand up like this. Mm. I'm not kidding, in the middle of clear daylight in the traffic, holds her hand up like this in front of me. And she has the kind of face that sort of turns down on the sides anyway, one of those resting faces that makes you suspicious of what really resides inside. And she holds her hand up like this and she turns her hand sideways and she goes like this. I didn't wanna go anymore. I was done. What I wanted very badly just 30 seconds earlier, I no longer wanted. I'm like, no, you go, you go. You're not putting your hand up in my face and you're not giving me the fingers like that. 
So I waited another four minutes and I turned in front of some nice person who wasn't giving me attitude. Something weird about that, something we want, something we want badly, something changes everything and we don't want it quite so much anymore. We want something else. Something outside ourself happens and changes the course of our attitude, our actions, even our thoughts. Now, it didn't rob me of my happiness, but it came close. And we're going to talk about happiness today. And I want you to ask yourself the question, am I happier than I was yesterday? Am I happier than I was at the beginning of this series? Am I more the person who God wants me to be? And so today we're going to be in Philippians 1. We're going to be in Philippians 1, really focusing on Philippians 1, 11, And we've been working through phrase by phrase or word by word this passage of Scripture. Now, the passage of Scripture here in Philippians is an important passage. It's one that I thought was so important that we have taken six weeks of our church life and we'll take a few more weeks uh, to wrap up. All of our small groups on Wednesday evening and Sunday evenings are discussing these things and applying them to our lives. And it's a prayer that was written by the Apostle Paul in a book that he wrote as an older man, looking back on a church that he loved, a church he had started, a church he sacrificed for, the people had a soft spot in his heart, a special place in his mind. And he's writing advice and prayers and instruction given to him by God himself, the Holy Spirit, to his church, but also to our church many years later. And the book that he wrote, the book of Philippians is on joy and on happiness. Who doesn't want to be happy? We live in an unhappy world, in an unhappy time. You can see it on people's faces. You can see it on the news. We experience it. There's tension, frustration, suspicion. But yet there's a way for us to have supernatural joy and happiness in spite of everything else that's going on. And our times today are no different than they were back when the apostle Paul penned this letter. We think things are so much more difficult now than they've ever been, but I'm a student of history, as are many of you, and history is cyclical, and there have been much worse times in our history, and Jesus lived through times that were equally as difficult. The Apostle Paul was writing in a time that was extremely difficult. The circumstances might have looked a little bit different, but the themes were there. So the Apostle Paul is writing this book, and he starts with a prayer And he said, I want more than anything else for you guys to experience these things. Now, the fact that he's praying it means that it's supernatural, the things that he's praying for. Now, I want you guys to track with me on this, because if we aren't tracking together on this, we aren't going to be able to continue, at least logically, we won't be able to to end up finishing together here in 30 minutes or so. It's a supernatural proposition. Something that you have to pray for means that you're asking God to do that. That you're asking God to do something outside ourselves. That you're asking God through the power of the Holy Spirit to do something special. Now, there are a couple of assumptions that go along with this. The first assumption is that it's the natural state of a Christian to be living with these characteristics in their life. That it's the way we should be living. It's the way that we're expected to live. But the expectation or the assumption is that sometimes we don't live this way. Sometimes we slip, sometimes we fall, sometimes we don't live like what, well, the picture that scripture paints, what it looks like. 
So the apostle Paul's praying and he's like, I know you're living in a tough world. I know you have bad circumstances. I know there are difficult people in your life. I get the fact you're not always going to be understanding of everything that goes on, that there are going to be things that seem out of control. But listen, there's something greater than all of that, something that supersedes or transcends. And let me talk to you about that. There's a power that you have never known, but that you can know forever. And he writes about this power. And he breaks it down so simply, but you and I have to break it down even more simply because we're simple people, at least I am. And so this week, we're in the sixth week of this great prayer, studying this prayer. Now, I almost hate to say this is a prayer instructing us how to be happy because being happy, when I say I just want to be happy, it sounds very egocentric. All I want to do is be happy. Now, to some, that means I want everything to go my way. I want everybody to be nice to me. I want plenty of money in the bank. I want great health. I want nice weather like we're having today, right? I want everything in my life to go my way and I want to be happy. I'm the center of my universe. I'm the captain of my ship, right? I am the central character in the drama of my world. Now, the apostle Paul is pointing at some very important truth and hoping that you and I look. He points to Jesus who also points at truth. He was the truth and is the truth and says, I want you guys to look that there's a different way to live. And the only way to find true happiness is by giving ourselves away. Now, that was a non-starter for a lot of people. What do you mean give myself away? Not going to do it. Can't do it. Illogical, irrational, not of this world. You're a crazy man. And they went on and lived for themselves. And they died alone and full of regret. But the way that I'm talking to you about living, the way the Bible teaches us to live, the way the Apostle Paul points as he points toward Jesus is the way for us to live a life full of hope and meaning and significance to get to the end and to die without regret, closing our eyes at that last minute and opening them to the reality of Jesus, hearing him say, you did a good job. Welcome home. So here is this prayer. And this is my prayer, this supernatural prayer. This is what I'm asking God to do for us. That your love may abound more and more. That was week one. In knowledge, that was week two. Depth of insight, week three. So that you may be able to discern, that was week four, what's best. And be pure and blameless, that was last week for the day of Christ. This week we're going to talk about being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I could say very few things that sound churchier than I want you to be righteous people. I want you to be righteous, to live righteously. And if you were to say to each other, go and be righteous, it would be a very superficial sounding, kind of super spiritual, empty kind of a thing. But the word righteous is not a mystery. The word righteous literally means right. So if I were to say to you, I want you to go and live a life where you're right with God, does that make more sense? When I say to you, I want us to go live lives that are right with God, what that means is that my relationships are right, my vertical relationship is right, I'm living a life that's right with God, which means that my horizontal relationships are right, because it's impossible for me to be right with God and not right with people, and that when my life is filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is an agricultural term, means a little bit to us here living in Iowa, meant a lot to the original audiences. They lived in a world that turned and hinged on seasons and rain and sun and harvest. 
but to experience the good works that come from being right with God. Now, good works, that sounds a little empty, doesn't it? I'll just go and be a decent person. No, we're talking about supernatural living. We're talking about the Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit that we discussed last week. This love, this joy, this peace, this patience, this gentleness, this kindness, this self-control. A life that just is out of our, well, nothing that we fabricated, but a life that God has intended, remember, for his glory and his alone. So this is my prayer for you, friends, that you live a life full of righteousness full of the fruit of righteousness. Now, theologians argue about whether this righteousness is the righteousness that comes because we're saved or if it's the righteousness that comes through salvation and it's demonstrated in the way we live. And I believe very simply that the key to happiness is to live a life where our actions, where the things that we do are consistent with the person we say we are. That we live a life that demonstrates being right with God. Are you right with God? Be an interesting coffee conversation for us to have. You could ask me the same question. I'd try to answer as transparently as I possibly could. I hope you would too. But I just want you to answer this question yourself. Are you right with God? If you were to die right now, which is a morbid thought, would you or could you die without regret? Is there something unfinished, something unsettling, something we need to do? I want us to live happy lives, full of the fruit of righteousness, being right with God, right living, Right with God, right with others. So I ask the question, how could I not be right with God? How could I not be right with others? What happens in my life that changes the things I say I want when some little action or attitude all of a sudden makes me want something else? And I look back at the teachings of Jesus and I see Jesus making an appeal to people. And the appeal is live this kind of life. And I know that you may choose not to, but if you live this kind of life, you're going to experience this happiness that's beyond anything you've imagined. And if you choose not to, well, you get what you choose. And so I was looking back at a passage in the book of John, the passage in the book of John called John, what's John 10, 10. And Jesus is explaining the difference between himself and the other people or things that people may live their lives following. Specifically, Jesus was talking about empty religion and the religious leaders of the day and how they had conformed a relationship with God and, and manipulated it to where it looked like, well, we were in charge, we were in control. And he said, I understand that many of you have been deceived. I understand that many of you have been frustrated. I understand that many of you have been pointed the wrong direction. I know that some of you have been controlled. I know that some of you have tried to get in and figure out how to have peace with God. And I know there have been people who've stood in your way. And I want to write something. He was speaking. It was written later. That'll help you understand the difference. Because a right life comes from a right relationship. 
and a right relationship. Well, that's what Jesus was concerned about. So let's look together at this John 10, 10. And I want to talk to you about the potential enemy of us living this best life ever. Now, Jesus uses a word picture. And the word picture that Jesus uses is one where he talks about being a shepherd and there being sheep. Now, we don't have sheep. We talk a lot about sheep. And anytime there's a word picture or an analogy that comes up in scripture, I try to explain to you why it's important. Because for us, we look at it and might think it's irrelevant if it's not part of our context or part of our world. Now, the word picture in Jesus' day, everyone would have been tracking with because they knew what shepherds were. They knew what sheep were. You and I know what shepherds and sheep are, at least abstractly, but it was part of their lives. It would be as much part of their life as it would be teacher classroom, or it would be, you know, policeman citizen, or it would be, uh, I mean, you, you can pick your own analogy. And as he's communicating, he says, I want you to understand this is my heart. This is the basis for how you live your life. This is the basis for what I'm inviting you to do. This is the basis of the fruit of righteousness. So he first starts and contrasts and he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy. Now thieves stole sheep all the time. Thieves would come in and steal sheep for a couple of reasons. One, they'd want to add sheep to their own sheep herd or sheep group or sheep flock or whatever sheep congregate in. Another reason would be that they steal sheep because they were hungry and they wanted to eat the sheep and they wanted to sustain their lives. And another more popular reason would be is they would come in and they would steal sheep and they would sell the sheep and they'd take the money and do whatever they wanted. And so there were a couple of different real uh, obstacles for a good shepherd for a person who took their job seriously. The first obstacle was that thieves would often try to sneak in and they would try to take what it is that your responsibility to guard, well, well, it was. Now, animals had a part and sometimes there were natural disasters and sometimes sheep were just dumb and wandered off. But Jesus is focusing in on the idea of a thief. And everyone would have understood thieves come. Thieves come and they come to steal. They come to steal the sheep, but they, they come to steal other stuff. And so Jesus is kind of explaining it. And he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus is contrasting himself, comparing and contrasting to the thief. Now, we have thieves in our day, right? We have people who break in, who steal, who kill, and who destroy. There was a point in time when my boys were a lot younger. They were preoccupied with the idea of thieves. It came after we watched Home Alone. You remember Home Alone? <laughs> when the thieves came, and they came to steal. They didn't come to kill initially, and to destroy. And my boys, they had a meeting and they decided they needed to prepare for the thief that comes because thieves obviously come. I guess they assumed maybe we would go to on vacation, leave them home and they would be left to defend the castle. And they got so preoccupied and so obsessed with the idea of a thief. And as they talked, they said, well, thieves come and we don't know when they're coming. I'm like, well, yeah, that's part of the surprise, right? 
Thieves come and they steal what's important to you. Yeah, they, they, they can do that. Thieves come and, they, and they, oh, their imaginations were running wild, so I prepared them for it. And I said, all right, we're going we're gonna to figure this out. You guys are going to be the most prepared three and six-year-old or six and nine-year-old or whatever it is in the history of the world. We're going to run some drills. We're going to prepare for the thieves. I'm going to give you some control and command over the situation. And so I said, you guys are the homeowners. You're home alone. I'm the thief. And we went through drills where, now this may be bad parenting, don't judge me, it's okay. This was a different, simpler time. Nobody got sued. No parents were called on you know, child protection services and all of that. This was back in the day. They had airsoft guns. I had padding. I gave them airsoft guns. I wore the padding, dressed in black, went outside, and I said, I'm going to break in. You guys hide. I'm going to try to come in. I'm going to steal, kill, and destroy. You make sure you eliminate the threat before I can get there to your stuff. So they had the stuff in their room. I would try to sneak in the house. The boys would take off their airsoft guns. Bam, 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 bam. I was padded up and goggled up and all that. Oh, they got me. There I would lay on the ground. That's what we did for fun. Now, the weapons that they chose to use were airsoft guns, right? The airsoft guns eliminated the threat. I didn't have any weapons. The thief has weapons. The thief has a weapon. The thief that comes to, to steal, to kill and destroy. And the weapon the thief has is sin. Now sin is another word that sometimes is a non-starter in our society because we don't like talking about it. What is sin? Some people define sin by saying, well, sin is something that hurts another person. Well, that's part of it, but not complete. Sin is something this society says is illegal. Well, that can be part of it, but not complete. Sin is something that I don't like. When you do something that makes me feel uncomfortable, well, that's sin, but things that I do, well, they're okay. And we like to judge harshly other people's actions, and we like to judge our own sort of on the curve. But the Bible defines sin very, very carefully. And the weapon that the thief uses, this sinful weapon, is any thought, any action, or any attitude that's displeasing to God. So the right relationship that we have, this right living, can be stolen by thoughts, by actions, and by attitudes that are displeasing. Now, when I asked you a minute ago, are you right with God? You may have thought of some thoughts, actions, or attitudes displeasing. And these thoughts, actions, attitudes that are displeasing to God are robbing you of your happiness. But let's look for just a second at this thief, because I think there's some confusion over this. Some people just automatically look at the thief in John 10, 10. If you've been around church any period of time, like I have, pastors are very quick to say, the thief is Satan. We blame everything on the devil. Now, the thief can be controlled by Satan because the Bible tells us in 1 John that Satan is the father of this world, that this world is under his power and influence, that God has total control of this world, that gives the devil some limited control within this world, not outside of God's ability to control, but because God's chosen to allow him to have at least a limited free reign. And Satan does do some things. He tempts, 
But the Bible tells us that there's no temptation that we can experience that's so strong that we would just have to forfeit our happiness and our joy. Satan sometimes oppresses, but there's no oppression that's so strong that we have to forfeit our happiness or our joy. And that's one of the applications here. We live in a world where there is the evil one who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. And Satan is real and he's powerful, but he's not all powerful. But that's not the primary thing or application that this passage is even talking about. The second possible explanation of this thief and who this thief is that comes to rob us of our righteous or right living would have certainly at least been some of the world leaders there back in the Apostle Paul in Jesus' day, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who had come to make things extremely difficult for people, tripping them up on legalistic ideas, giving rules and regulations that were never intended for them to live by or follow, making church and organized religion such a barrier to a relationship with Christ that many people threw their hands up and said, I give up. It's too hard. It's not for me. Sometimes the thief can be another person in our life who we allow to come in and we allow them to steal our happiness. But more times than not, I think you and I are the thieves. Certainly influenced by Satan, sometimes influenced by others. But do you know what the least common denominator of every bad thing that's ever happened in my life is? Me. And you are in yours as well. You've been around for every bad decision you've ever made in your lives. And sometimes we rob ourselves of true happiness. Sometimes we choose the weapon of the thief. We choose sin. So let's look at this idea again, sin. Thoughts, actions, attitudes. When I talk about sin, it helps me to remember. I even heard a pastor not too long ago go, just decide for yourself what the definition of sin is. Whatever your definition of sin is, is fine. No, no, no. Let's use this definition. Thoughts, actions, attitude. Let's use the Bible's definition. I'm going to talk about this backwards, which is difficult for me. Thoughts, actions, attitudes, the way I remember it. But we're going to talk about the attitudes, then the actions, then the thoughts. Because I believe these are three things that we allow to rob us individually, ourselves, our own worst enemy of our happiness. The first one is an attitude that's displeasing to the Lord. Now we spent a long time as a church family talking about attitudes. Let me ask you the question, how is your attitude? Do you have a good attitude or a bad attitude? In general, we think of attitudes as a disposition toward the world around us, but let me ask you about your attitude toward the people closest to you. How is the attitude toward those people who are closest to you in your proximity of life? For me, it would be my wife. Then it would be probably my boys, Pastor Dan, Lori, our church family staff, working itself out in concentric circles. How's my attitude? 
attitude doesn't just relate to the people closest to us. I ask myself the question, how's my attitude toward the people who are different from us? How's my attitude in general to the people who aggravate me, to the people who scare me, to the people who frustrate me? Because attitude is what builds the bridge that the gospel can travel on from a person like you or me to a person who desperately needs to hear who Jesus is. And having a sinful attitude toward the world around us, the world who Jesus came to die for, well, it's the opposite of righteous living. Actions certainly are a part of this. Sometimes you and I choose to pursue what we call pleasure, thinking that it'll bring us happiness. So we do things. There's something weird about the human where we're created for ritual. We're created to do the same kinds of things. We're created to pursue the same kinds of things. I believe the positive side to that is discipline. The negative side to that could be addiction. Many of us live somewhere in between, but we put things in our life, actions, or allow things into our lives that we do sometimes repeatedly that we know rob us of our happiness. We steal from ourselves and in turn steal from God and experience no fruit of righteousness. And the thing about this whole pleasure happiness paradox is the more that we pursue happiness in ways that are displeasing to the Lord, the law of diminishing returns devastates us because it takes more and more and more and more. And before we know it, we've drifted so far down that road that we have no idea how we got there and sometimes feel like there's no way back. Now, we guys are really good at when thinking about this, when embracing this idea of managing it. Going, oh, yeah, well, I need to do better. Oh, yeah, I should probably cut back. Oh, yeah, I probably ought to rearrange some things in my life to where I can. And you know what I've learned? I'll just share from my heart to your heart. I can't talk to you ladies as much because you guys ladies are still a mystery to me. Talk to yourselves. We don't do a good job, men, of cutting back. We do a much better job of cutting it out. Are you willing? The third thing, we talked about actions or attitudes. We talked about actions. But this third thing, this is where I want to land this plane. And I feel like this third thing, this third part of the definition of sin maybe is what most subtly robs us of our happiness and what steals the fruit of righteousness from our lives. And it's the thoughts that we think. Thoughts that are displeasing to God, but immediately that puts things in a negative light. And I think just from my experience with you and talking to friends and people who don't yet know Jesus, and when we discuss the Lord, I find oftentimes, many, many times, that people are a little bit scared 
If I was to ask the question, or if I were to ask the question, what does Jesus think about you? How would you answer that? What does Jesus think? You ever get a conversation or a call or text from your boss, a phone call where he says, hey, I need to see you at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Now, if you got a call, if you got a text like that, if you were walking out the door at four o'clock on a Friday and he said, Monday morning, I need to see you first thing, or, you know, it would bring a little stress or anxiety into many people's lives. If Jesus were to do that to you, if he were to shoot you a text or an email or, you know, talk to you, hey, I, wanna, I need to meet you at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. You're going to look face to face into the eyes of Jesus over a table with a couple cups of coffee. And you knew he was going to tell you what he thought about you. What emotion does that bring up? For some of us, we feel like it would be the worst performance review ever. We might even want to jump in ahead of time and be constructive and manage the situation and go, now, Jesus, I know that I've fallen a little bit short on this, that I haven't done this, that I know I need to do a better job at this. And I know when I was driving the other day and when I was talking to my wife and I know that when, and we would go through all these different things to try to sort of manage that relationship. And I believe Jesus would chuckle a little bit. I believe he would look us right in the eyeball and I believe he would put his hand out. And I believe this because the Bible communicates this over and over again. And he would say, I love you. You matter to me, and there's nothing you can do to change that. And he extends that hand, and he says, there is a different way. And all we have to do is to leave those attitudes, actions, the thoughts behind, to take him by the hand as he says, I'm the good shepherd. He says, I lay my life down for the sheep. What does that mean? Well, back in the day, the shepherds, man, if they lost sheep, they were in trouble. If they lost sheep, they had to pay. Sometimes they had to pay financially if they lost a sheep. Sometimes they had to pay because they got beat by the person who owned the sheep. The shepherds very rarely owned their own sheep. Sometimes they even lost their lives depending on how many sheep or what the context was. And so there were thieves who would come in and they wanted the sheep. There were terrible animals that would come in and attack and destroy and all sorts of things. And so the way that they would construct these pens, these sheep pens, as the shepherds were grazing sort of from place to place, is they would construct two different sides. It was the minimal work possible because they wanted to be efficient, but they didn't want to take too much effort. And they would put two sides up to a pen and it would have a little opening in the front and they wouldn't use wood or rocks to construct an opening. They would make sure the sheep couldn't get out from the two sides, sort of the two sides of a triangle. And they literally in the evening when it got dark and it got dangerous would lay their lives down. They would put themselves down and they would sleep in the doorway to the sheep pen as the gate, as the door. And Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, the good one who came so that you might have life and have it to the full. Now, if you're a churchy like me and you grew up with the King James Bible, you know that Jesus said, or the translation in the King James Bible, is that I came so that you may have the abundant life. A life that's beyond your imagination. A life that's beyond your ability to construct a life that's beyond your ability to manipulate. I've come, the good one, 
the real deal, the person who loves you and is for you and lays his life down for you, if you trust me. And he holds his hand out and he said, this is the way to living this life, experiencing the fruit of righteousness. I wonder if you're happy. I wonder if you're living a life where you're experiencing the fruit of righteousness. I wonder if maybe there's a twinge in your spirit where when I ask the question, are you right with God? Or perhaps the Holy Spirit pointed something out. Maybe an attitude. Maybe some actions, maybe some thoughts that are standing in the way. And Jesus says, you've seen what the world has to offer. You know where your life is taking you. Here's a different way. That's my prayer. Absolutely that our love will abound more and more that we'll know the truth and be able to discern what's best in our lives, that we'll have a life that's pure and that's blameless, but that results in a supernatural living that pleases the Lord. And most of all, where people who don't know him can in some miraculous way see his strength in my weak and broken life. And friends, that's the secret to happiness. Father, thank you for my friends, I pray.